welcome to the Hipstorians, and uh, it is my great pleasure to introduce uh, historian, journalist, uh, and writer Toby Harnden, um, who has written such books as Bandit Country, Dead Men Risen, and his latest release, First Casualty. Uh, and I think we'll probably get to touch on them all today. But uh, Toby has a particular Irish interest, it seems. Um, born in Portsmouth, am I right? Uh, That's a few, right, yeah. A few years ago. Um, yeah, and, uh, 56 years ago. Yeah, there you go, good <laughs> stuff. And um, certainly you, uh, you're living, you live in America now, is that right, in the States? That's right, I'm in Virginia, yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. How's, how's that? Why, why Virginia? Uh, well, it's the suburb, it's like the Washington, D.C. suburbs. Okay. So okay. Um, I guess initially just because I was working for, you know, newspapers and stuff and had to be in D.C., and now it's convenient. It's very close to the CIA headquarters, so okay. oh, right. lots of um, <laughs> old spies and new spies sort of around the area. So that's good. And do you see them walking around? Are they as obvious or not obvious? They're not walking around with cloaks, and uh, or please tell me that they do. <laughs> they don't have cloaks and daggers, but you, I feel like I can often tell who yeah. they are. Yeah, okay. really, okay. in the coffee shops and oh, stuff. Yeah. And then, of course, you'd be walking the dog, and you get talking to somebody. And you'll say, so, you know, what do you, you know, what do you do then? And whatever, and go, go, oh, uh, State Department, you know, the State Department. I'll be like, okay, yeah, I know, the State Department. (laughs) So, but you, so effectively you moved there for work, Toby, would that be a fair summation? Uh, Yeah, yeah. So I first came over here in 99 uh, for the Telegraph, actually, immediately after I'd been based in Belfast for three years. Um, and then I came again, and then I was away from 2003 to 2006 in the Middle East and London a little bit. And then I came back in 2006 to work for then the Sunday Telegraph. Yeah, right. so, yeah. Okay, look. but do you like it? Do you like it outside of the, the work element? Like, is it a nice place? Yeah, yeah. I mean, America's, a, I, I don't know, I guess I've always felt that America's where it's at. It's, yeah. you know, 50 separate states. It's sort of everything's, you know, bigger and and brasher and yeah. more outrageous than anywhere else mm. you know like even the weather you know the, like you you know the hurricanes and the floods and the tornadoes and and obviously the politics is you know gets pretty pretty crazy and stuff mm. um but you know it's there's a good standard of living it's yeah you know it feels it does feel like kind of the center of the world i guess in a way that yeah. that you know UK and Ireland didn't quite sometimes. So. Oh, absolutely. And that I was going to bring you on to a point I was going to say, let me bring you back to a different time and place to say our man, the 70s, which couldn't yeah. be any more different yeah. than, than where you're at. And so yeah. what I'm referring to, obviously, is Toby's book, Bandit Country, which I'd say it's fair to say it's been on shelves of many oh, it's, Irish it, homes. It, it's just one of those iconic covers that's what I always remember about it. And just explain a little bit, Toby, is that my brother is a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. And, you know, we yeah. had the tattoos, you know, hung out with a, with, a, with a crowd and everything. I wasn't. And, you know, um, but that's why Bandit Country was, you know, was revered on his bookshelf. I didn't have any particular interest in the North. It always seemed kind of grim and grey to me. I just remember, do you remember the TV broadcasts would be interrupted by with the key holder... With the yeah. key holder of uh, 19 terrorist place for Turkey, because it was like yeah. warrants of car bombings and stuff. So as a kid growing up, I just associate the North with grim 
and and nastiness, you know. But I yeah. did pick up Bandit Country, and you know, that's that's where you learn your stuff. I had a step granddad that is from Portadown, so we used to travel up there when I was a child. So I had a bit of experience in North, but like that, I kind of just went, ah, that's you know, I don't want to deal with that now, mm. or, or um, you know, read about that. But it was your book that piqued my interest, and I have picked up many a book on the North ever since. So yeah. I will thank you for that for sure. Yeah, it's a great start. Yeah, thank now, you. But even though it's written, you know, quite some time ago now, it's still relevant and still important. It's yeah. good. Good. How did you? come about writing Bandit Country Toad? Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm glad you like the cover because um, there was a lot of uh, kind of angst and grief over that cover. I, was, I mean, I, I remember I kept on rejecting them from the publishers. Mm. I started about the fourth one and they were really starting to lose patience. But I'll tell you what, the first one had a little girl in a first communion dress walking across the street in Belfast. That's, that's what we started with. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not about, this is not about First Holy Communion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's rural, not urban. And um, so, yeah, the tricolor and the, mm. the um, you know, the watchtowers That's at really night good. and everything. Yeah, I, I, I gave them those pictures and said, you know, and sniper at work sign, yeah. which it wasn't on the cover. But, you know, I said, this is the, this is the kind of feel. And I think in the, in the end, as soon as they came up with that one, I was like, yes. That's it. Mm. So, so basically, um, so I got sent to Belfast in 1996 as a t- Telegraph correspondent, and um, you know it was interesting. I was late. I was late into journalism. So at that point, 96, I was 30. Um, I'd <laughs> I'd been in the Royal Navy, so okay. I, oh. I, you know, I joined the Navy before university and done like a year's basic training basic officers training and then I got sponsorship through uh, Oxford I studied history and um, uh, but you know I always felt that I wanted to write and I'd always been interested in journalism so I sort of sort of jammed my foot in the door you know in 1994 uh, just just when I was leaving the Navy and um, and you know I, I was doing news reporting but there was always a sense that I think that I wasn't you know, I hadn't gone through the journalism college. I hadn't gone through regional papers. And so they didn't quite know what to do with me. Um, but I had this interest in defense, um, you know, because of my Navy background. But, you know, I, I didn't want to be the just that weird guy that was in the Navy and is now a journalist. Mm. Um, and so, you know, when the job of Northern Ireland came up, um, there was actually Max Hastings, who'd been the editor of The Telegraph, was yeah. trying to get me to go over to the Evening Standard. And um, I saw, but I didn't want to go partly because I didn't want to get up really early in the morning to work for an evening paper, and partly because it was a regional paper and stuff. So I kind of managed to leverage that into to getting the Belfast job, because I thought I need to do something that's going to make them realise that I can do reporting at the sharp the sharp end. Mm. And I think there was a feeling then that I'd already done holiday cover for my predecessor predecessor Richard Savile, sort of Christmas '95. And so, you know, there'd been the first IRA ceasefire, I think August 31st, 94. And so by the end of 95, the peace talks were stalled. It was the John, John Major era. And there were punishment beatings in Belfast. That so the, the IRA was sort of flexing its muscles. Uh, Sinn Féin was talking a lot about, um, uh, you know, 
I always call this ceasefire, but there hasn't been enough progress on inclusive talks and it was all getting bogged down. So there was def- I definitely had that sense at the end of 95, this is not over, mm. you know. And there's a sense a little bit in London of like, oh, you know, they had a ceasefire, troubles are over, that's it. Mm. Um, so anyway, I thought this is this is still a good story. Um, this ceasefire doesn't it seems pretty tenuous to me, and um, so I said, I, you know, so around about January '96, I said I, I want to, you know, I want to go. I'll, t- I'll, you know, yes, I'll take that. I'll take the job. And um, February '96, I'm in Canary Wharf um, in the newsroom. I think it was February the eighth, um, and a massive fucking explosion. Yeah. There's no other way of describing it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, which was, it's always called, the, often called the Canary Wharf bomb, yeah. but it was really at South Quay. And, you know, we were in the main Canary Wharf building and it it shook, you know. Wow. And um, people were jumping under their desks and everything. And um, the, the lifts were out, so, you know, we all, like, ran down the stairs and, you know, we knew it was a bomb. I think we, I mean, I think already there were reports of, an announcement that ceasefire had ended. And, um, yeah, so I was going over there, just doing the usual um, reporting on, you know, the aftermath of a bomb. Uh, but I remember thinking that night, like, shit, you know, are they going to are they gonna pull the job, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm not that experienced and maybe they'll think it's a big story yeah. now and they need somebody bigger than me. But anyway, they stuck with me. Um, and so I, went o- so I went over there in the following month, in March 96, and, you know, so the ceasefire had ended, but the relatively low levels of uh, attacks and activity um, in Northern Ireland, but it was, you know, it was the sort of era of, of like, drum cree, and, and it was sort of, it was all sort of creeping back, and you had the political talks at the, at the same time going on. So in that period, 96 to 99, obviously Good Friday Agreement, um, it became one of the biggest stories in the world. Um, and you know, and then all straight away, I was just because I was the only correspondent there, only reporter there. When something happened, I went to it, and I was, you know, I was new to journalism, so I was, you know, I was always worried about screwing up. And I, ju- I just nobody told me, you know, you could just take it off the radio or mm-hmm. you know off press association wires or whatever. Yeah, so yeah. my my attitude was, if something happens, I'm going, you know, right. and. And um, and so, I guess the the genesis of a bandit country would have been. So I'm trying to think exactly what I think the middle of, I think it would have been the middle of '96. And and I remembered, I was driving north, and then there was the announcement that the Metropolitan Poli- London Metropolitan Police were carrying out an anti-terrorism operation in South Armagh connected to the Docklands bomb, the Canary Wharf bomb. And um, so I was listening to this, and I had already been interested in South Armagh. Like, so, you know, stories when I was a kid of Robert Nyrak, you know, the mm-hmm. yeah. Grenadier Guards officer oh, yeah. abducted in 77, the body never found and all that. Mm. George Cross, you know. Um, and I remember driving across the border and just seeing a sign, I think it said Fork Hill 7. And, that, and I was like, okay, that's South Armagh. And this operation's going on. So I just thought, well, I'll just, just drive in and take a look. And so I just I sort of turned left and was you know, driving on these country roads. And um, there's like British soldiers with 
camouflage and blacked up faces and helmets like in the undergrowth looking shit scared basically mm. and and sure enough i drove in you know uh t- towards fort kill and um there's all these um uh like police forensic officers in these like forensic suits mm. you know and, and they, they found a bit of they found a vehicle that had been used to um to transport the bomb or parts of that vehicle and um i remember thinking then like wow this is this is crazy. It's like stepping back into the middle of the night. This is, you know, this is the mid nineties. It's like stepping back 20 years. Um, it feels like a war zone. Um, and yet this is, you know, technically part of the United Kingdom, you know, yeah. and, you know, and I was here and I, you know, I read all this stuff about how the, 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 the police couldn't operate on the ground. They'd have to be with the army to be helicoptered in mm-hmm. and out and all this. And so I just, at that point, I just thought, wow and the, and that bomb in docklands that came from here mm. and um so i just started to become you know fascinated with this small patch of land and the more i found out about it the more i realized that it, it felt to me like all roads led to south Armagh. so you had you know, thomas slab murphy yeah. you know, reputedly ira chief of staff you know farmer smuggler with the with the farm right on the border, with the border going through his farm, and then you had um, these um, sniper attacks. You had um, an IRA sniper team, or actually, I think it was two. Um, basically, one around Cross McGlen, one centered around Drum and T. Um, so doing these sometimes very long range shots with fifty caliber sniper rifles, um, and then you had basically the IRA's England department was being run out of South Armagh. Um, and then you had the historic stuff like, you know, Robert Nyrak. And I thought, wow, where, so where's the book on this place? So now I want to read it. Mm. And, there, and there was no book. And it, all the books were about Belfast or Derry. Mm. And, and so I guess I just thought, well, maybe I should try and write one. And, and it seemed like kind of a bit of a preposterous idea in a way because, you know, I had no real background in Ireland and I was relatively new to reporting, but, um, yeah, so I just decided to do it and that's, that's how it, how it came about. And the title obviously refers to the area that was known. Was it known, yeah. well known as, as Ballard Country? Yeah. Or would it have been yeah. like, what's the genesis of the... So, yeah, so I was concerned about, I mean, I had lots of thoughts about the title. So, South Armagh, that's that, in England, that's, News, newspaper headlines would always say bandit country. So that was how it was sort of recognised. And that's what British soldiers called it a lot. Mm. And I actually tracked down the origin of the phrase. Um, it was Merlin Rees, Northern Ireland Secretary, in about 74, 75, I think. Okay. Uh, I think under Harold Wilson. He'd coined the term and, and it had sort of stuck. And I was a little bit concerned about it because it was seen as kind of often seems like a British term and sort of pejorative and, you know, oh, you know, the, the, you know, the English would, the Brits would sort of, you know, brand, brand us as bandits and, mm. you know, criminals. And, um, but I think it fitted in with the sort of the historic lawlessness. And, and then I also found some of the, um, some of the Republicans in South Armagh themselves, it was sort of like a badge of honour, 
at one point I wanted to call it Fighting Men from the like Fighting Men of Prost McGlenn because I was I was worried that as a you know as a British reporter as an outsider that it might just be written off if I called it Bandit Country. Um, but then I also remember who Suzanne Breen, who's then mm. Irish Times. And she was like, fuck's sake, Toby, what else can you call it? Yeah. You know, of course you should call it that. Yeah. And, um, and, I th- and it was right. I never got any criticism for the name, you know. Mm. So and in some ways, I think it was, you know, I was overthinking it. It was the obvious thing yeah. to call it. You know, and I made it very clear in the kind of blurb that it was, yeah. you know, it was branded Bandit Country by, you know, Merlin Reese and stuff. Um, oh, so, fair. but it seemed to be. It seemed to be the right type for, of thing. For whatever it's worth, when I was, uh, you know, my time when I was living over in uh, New York, I worked with a rather suspect, uh, you know, older gentleman uh, from Cross Midland who had no past other than the fact he was from Cross Midland. And that's what, that was it. So it, uh, it remains a mystery to me to this day, but I do have my suspicions, obviously. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but did it seem like banded country to you as a young British reporter? Like when you went into South Amara, were you... One of, like like one of the terrified squaddies in the ditch. <laughs> um, not quite, but I remember. I remember actually speaking to a fairly senior IEC officer, or he became fairly senior, um, and he'd worked down there. Um, he'd worked out of Newry IEC station, and he'd he was connected actually with the working the case of the Dockman's bomb and stuff. And um, I remember him saying to me, you know, just never, whenever you're there, never relax mm-hmm. and always have a plan to always have a plan to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and also he said, never pretend to be anything uh, that you're not. So d- don't think you could just, you know, creep around the edges mm-hmm. and blend into the background. Because they'll know exactly, you know, if you're in Fork Hill, um, but you know, if you're from Carly Hanna, they'll they'll know you're sort yeah. of a sort of a foreigner. So if yeah. you're, you know, this Brit that was in the navy a couple of years ago, there's yeah. no way um, you, you, you're going to fool them. And so I actually did sort of take that to heart. And although, you know, I, I went to all the commemorations, I went to his, historical events. Um, I ended up <laughs> coincidentally having a girlfriend from there and, you know, I would stay with her and her family and stuff. Um, but I never, I never, um, I never, I was always sort of on my guard, you know? Yeah. And, and I, and I always did have a, pl- so, you know, I would go to, you know, I'd go to an event, say a commemoration for a volunteer. And so I'd, uh, I'd get there and uh, I'd see Jim McAllister or maybe some other champagne person that, that I knew. And I'd go up and I'd sort of say, hey, Jim, how's it going? Shake his hand. And um, and sort of in very kind of out in the open. And then, then I'd see some of the people who I knew were, you know, IRA volunteers and sometimes senior people. And, you know, you see them whispering or somebody go up to McAllister and say, who's, who's that? And, and he'd, he'd tell them. And so I wasn't pretending to be anything I was. I was there as a, as a, as a, as a reporter or I was, you know, researching a book, yeah. you know, because obviously look at what happened to Robert Nyrak before that he could. That's, you know. that's, that was actually just leading on to my very next question, Toby. That was uh, a chap who became just almost mythic 
character and um, who, yeah. who famously went around going to IRA pubs and joining sing songs uh, with an right. accent. And, you know, that's his last known movements, weren't they, in, in, in a pub that he was actively yeah. singing rebel songs and taught or assumed that he could, you know, weave in and out between, you know, British military intelligence and being right. an And he, he got away with it up to a certain that's point, cool. obviously. Um, but yeah. he's a character that comes into my own story a little bit because, as, as you may be aware, I wrote a book with Stephen Travers, yes. the survivor yeah. of the infamous Miami Showband Massacre of 1975. And Naira comes into that story, dips in yeah. like, like, this, like this kind of like phantom figure. Because, you know, without going off tangent too quickly, Steve remembers infamously as the band was pulled up at what they thought was a, an army checkpoint. It was, as yeah, we know, yeah, yeah. know, it was Loyalist, the members of the Glen Ann gang. And this British army officer arrived with very grand speaking and Steve had worked in London, so he recognised the accent and he was assured by his bandmates, this is professional British British military here. The bomb goes off, as we sadly know, you know, kill, kills some of the band and Steve survives. Now, to this day, Steve would be reluctant to put a name on the British yeah. Army officer because he considers that like red herrings. But there's no doubt that this guy slips in and out. It's so many stories connected with, with South Armagh. Yeah, so so I read, so I di- I dipped into your book, you know, recently and 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 read all that and um and you know I felt that actually Stephen Travers was uh, obviously he went through something just horrendous, but he was sort of very fair minded in a way. Mm-hmm. I felt about Nairac, um because so I think um, so. You know, I never researched um, Dublin Modern Bombs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miami Showband, you know, in any sort of depth. Um, but Nyrak's name would always sort of come mm-hmm. up. And then there's all these other characters who I'm sure, Fred Holroyd and yeah. these people that you, you're very well um, acquainted with. As far as I can tell, uh, Nyrak, he'd done a tour at, with, I think it was um, 14 Inst, yeah. uh, 14th Intelligence Company, which basically... Um, I think they subsequently became they were they were known as the debt, um, and and later on they became SRR like the Strategic Reconnaissance Regiment. And they're basically British military, but sort of undercover, not like deeply undercover, but on the streets undercover doing surveillance, um, and uh, and they were connected with the the FRU and which was more running sources. But anyway. So Nairat was part of that in Belfast, and there's a picture of him, not that many pictures of him, but one, there's one of him of him with a load of kids, and he's got a, he's actually got a beret on and stuff, um, so he's in uniform. But that's that's in Belfast with 14 ends. Later on in this period, you know, when he met his death, he was his job title because I saw it in documents was SASLO, SAS liaison officer, but he wasn't in the SAS. Um, and he wasn't an SAS officer, and he was basically, but he was the liaison officer from the brigade, the army brigade, you know, that um, covered South Armagh, um, which I think was headquartered in Armagh, but Armagh City, but, you know, the main base was Bestbrook Mill, so he would be working out of, I guess, um, mostly out of Bestbrook. Uh, but, but his job was to be the liaison officer between the brigade and the SAS. Uh, and also the IEC, 
and I, and I actually know um, people who subsequently did that job. So there's a guy called Rupert Thornlow, who was the commanding officer of the Welsh Guards, who was killed in 2009, and he became the sort of impetus for Dead Men Risen, mm, my second right. book. Yeah. He was doing he was doing Nairat's job in when I was in Northern Ireland in in um, 96, 97. Um, as you know, basically the liaison officer between the army and mm. the, the, the different agencies. But then it was less uh, SAS because they must have more formalised sort of structure. But he was mainly IEC special branch sort of liaison. And he was always going between Bestbrook Mill and Armagh. And so I think Nairak was a sort of mixed up character in many ways. I mean, he's like Catholic background I think he was in. Yeah, in some ways, he had kind of romantic sympathy um, with the IRA or republicanism. Um, but at the same time, he was this guard, you know, upstanding sort of blue blood guards officer. Mm. And um, I, I never, I never got the sense, and I never, um, certainly never found any evidence or even indication that. Nairak would have had anything to do with loyalist paramilitaries. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm yeah. sure he he would have had, you, you know, we all know the guy, and in fact, one of them I interviewed for Banner Country, Billy McCockey, yeah. um, who was part of that SPG, these guy, these like hardcore um, Protestants who were basically uh, loyalist terrorists, paramilitaries, who were kind of like, you know, they were UD, UDR, yeah, yeah. IUC, you know, one day, and then they put the balaclava on and yeah. go and throw a bomb in a bar in Kidi and all but those guys. Mm. So I'm, I would imagine he would have had sort of, you know, dealings with them. Um, he would have known some of them just because it was a very sort of small, um, a s- small world. But, I mean, I think what happens with, with sometimes when somebody becomes notorious, and so obviously once he was dead... You know, oh, there's this guy with the British, you know, this plummy yeah. voice British officer, mm. you know, who's in the three steps, and and then, you know, there's kind of a lot of British army officers with plummy voices, mm. and then people make the connection, mm. and then all of a sudden, some guy Robert Nye is a bit of like a Forrest Gump figure where he's mm. sort of popping up everywhere. Mm. Um, so, you know, I mean, who knows? You can't prove a negative, but um, yeah. I'd be pretty surprised, and I think somebody. Because actually, when I read um, the bits about him in in your book, Neil, I, you know, I went down a couple of rabbit holes, and wasn't mm. there somebody who found out that on that night he was somewhere else or something? Mm. Um, so some people really did a deep dive on it. So anyway, it's kind of a long winded way of saying um, I haven't seen any, mm. I haven't seen any evidence, and I would be to me it doesn't really. Being involved in that sort of loyalist mm. stuff, it doesn't really fit with who I sort of think Nairak was, but mm. who knows? Well, obviously, we're talking here about the murky world of collusion. It's a dirty word. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It rises up repeatedly. But there's no doubt about the collusion then with the, with, with Breen and Buchanan that you, you uncovered in Bandit Country, and yeah. which led to the Semitic Tribunal. And, you know, was it a very realistic chance that you could have been sent to jail um, for not giving over evidence to, to Smithick? 
Well, I, I guess actually the time I was more likely to go to jail was with um, on Bloody Sunday and 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 not giving over the identities of those soldiers, yeah. paratroopers, yeah. because obviously because because I guess the Irish Republic would have had no jurisdiction over me because <laughs> um, yeah. I was living in the US and I'm you know UK and now US citizen, so I don't think I ever could have been pros- prosecuted in the Republic. Mm. Um, but you know, I mean, um, you know, it's tricky when you know. I wrote what I wrote in in Bandit Country, and that eventually led to the, you know, there was a Corrie Tribunal or the Corrie Inquiry, and then the Smithwick Tribunal. Yeah. Um, and you know, I ha- had this very kind of delicate decision about whether I would testify. And in the end, I decided not to because I, I thought, well, I'm just going to let the book um, mm. stand. You know, the words that I wrote sort of stand on their own. And I also knew that I would have been up against extremely clever, yeah. you know, yeah. barristers yeah. Who'd, who'd, you know, by this point, I, you know, Bandit Country was written in 1999. And so we're talking like 10 years later or so, mm. maybe more. And um, so I've been working on U.S. politics and Iraq and Afghanistan and all the rest of it. And I would have been up against, um, you know, very clever criminal barristers who'd been spending years on every aspect of this. And, you know, when you're writing a book or, you know, you write as best you know, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not like a police case where you're proving beyond reasonable doubt. Yeah. And I, you know, there's... You know, and I had, you know, sources and, you know, um, mm. influences. And um, so in the end, I just decided that... Um, uh, and also, I saw Kevin Myers got crucified mm. in, in the Smithwick Tribunal. And um, now, you know, he was he was talking on the basis of a couple of columns that he'd rattled off. And I was, you know, I had a lot more sort of, I felt, kind of genuine kind of material and research behind me but um in the end i sort of felt i'll just let it i'll let it stand yeah. stand on its own and certainly it has it certainly has and that was the, the, the benchmark book but then obviously you've gone on to, re- to write several other books as well and mm. um, i didn't know i missed this missed this detail were you embedded with a u.s army unit um in iraq in fallujah yeah that's right yeah wow. so I, I don't know so how this escaped my attention at all. So th- yeah. This is extraordinary stuff. Again, there's a bit of a link because I did a book with a guy called um, God, oh, Graham Dale. He's a young man from Dublin who signed up to the US Marines and fought in Iraq. So it's kind of a similar... Okay. I wasn't embedded with them. I, yeah. just, I, wanna, I wasn't that brave enough. Um, <laughs> but I watched... I, I think it was. It, it's called um, Gener- Generation Kill... Oh, yeah. <clears throat> which is that great TV series, yeah. which is based on the book, yeah. on the book by was it was he? Uh, oh, he was with Rolling Stone. Uh, Evan Harris. He was a Rolling Stone writer called Evan Harris, and yeah. he, he was embedded with some of the spearhead Marines that went into. Yeah, into he Iraq. was. Yeah, that was right. That was Marines. That was in the invasion. That was a two thousand three invasion. Yeah. So, what was your experience? What did you do? So basically, so so I left Northern Ireland in ninety nine, and then I went to Washington. And, you know, so I've been in this kind of quite small story. You know, it was a, a story of worldwide sort of 
prominence, but it's still a small patch of land, really. Yeah. Um, and and all of a sudden, I'm covering you know nuclear treaties and you know relations with China and all this sort of stuff. And you know, it was quite intimidating when I first, you know, overwhelming a little bit when I first got there. And I also sort of thought, geez, you know, I'm just covering men in suits, you know, on Capitol Hill and in the Oval Office. And what, but what I'd really, you know, loved about the island story was, you know, war and terrorism and mm. bullets in the back of the head and all that kind yeah, of pretty yeah. sort of, <laughs> right, sort of yeah. dark underbelly sort of stuff. Um, but anyway, but, you know, I, I'd been there for, um, I guess, two years because uh, I got I got there September '99, so two so two years been through an election and hanging chads and Bush versus Gore and everything, and um, and then 9/11, and so soon so it was almost like you know the war came to me sort of thing because I was thinking God you know maybe I sh- should be in the Middle East or Africa or something and rather than you know Washington, but then all of a sudden you know the world changed I was in DC that day and, and of course I immediately wanted to go to. Afghanistan, and then of course the Telegraph was like, "No way, you know, mm. we need you to cover the Bush administration because you've got your feet under the table now." Um, but I was always, you know, partly because I guess my background, Navy, and I'm like fourth generation military, and the experience yeah. in Northern Ireland, I really wanted to get to the sharp end, and so, you know, I kept on agitating to sort of get out of Washington, and then 2003, uh, after the invasion, um, I got sent to the Middle East, sent to Jerusalem. And then from there, you know, very very soon became clear that um, the Iraq War wasn't over. You know, because remember the statue came down and everybody thought that was it. Mm. Um, but you know, there was an insurgency in really twin insurgencies: a Shia insurgency and Sunni insurgency. And so, in you know, early two thousand and four, I sort of signed off from Jerusalem and went to Iraq sort of full time. And initially it was possible to sort of travel around independently a lot of the time. But then as 2004 wore on, there was more and more embedding, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it was just becoming a sort of full st- full-scale military conflict. And so I embedded with uh, U.S. Army 1st Infantry Division for Fallujah in, no- in November 2004 and... All of a sudden, you know, the biggest battle since the Vietnam War. And so I suddenly, you know, I mean, you know, it was it's exciting and exhilarating. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I felt suddenly felt like I'm really, mm-hmm. I'm really at the sharp end. You know, yeah. this I'm really where it's at. You know, mm-hmm. where it's at is not, you know, the Oval mm-hmm. Office and the White House briefing room. This is where it's at. And so, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it was a hell of an experience. And was as exciting, uh, you know, as it was. Was it? <laughs> was it dangerous was it like were you right in harm's way um did, well, did, didn't one of the guys win a medal of honor one of the guys you were so yeah so it was funny so that unit so it was task force 2-2 as part of the first infantry division um and so you know it, it's funny because even when i was there i was thinking you know oh the the main thing is the marines you know mm. and so so even when you get into these environments you're you're always thinking 
yeah, I'm here, but maybe I should be a bit closer, you know. <laughs> maybe it should be, with this, this unit's better, you know. Or what, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Probably if you were with the Marines, you'd be like, oh, I should be with one four Marines, yeah, not yeah, one yeah. eight Marines, you know. Yeah. And so, or I should be with this platoon yeah. instead of that platoon. You're, you're like a moth and, to the flame. Yeah, 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 I guess so, yeah. You know, and of course, you know, I'm in my early 30s single and, you know, mm. I just, you know, I never thought, never thought it was going to happen to me type of thing. Um but yeah, so um, I was actually with attached to one company and then I transferred over to another company and they were like right in the, in the thick of it in Fallujah. And, um, you know, house to, actually, so David Bellavere, who's the guy who got the Medal of Honor, he, he did a very good book actually called House to House. And they were going house to house, clearing out the, um, clearing, um, the buildings and uh you know sometimes and there'd be these sort of amped up insurgents um who you know sometimes they get shot several times and they'd still keep going kind of thing and so all that was going on and i remember the company commander who's called captain called sean sims he just he sort of welcomed me sort of you know and he's like he had all this like dirt like street down his face you know sort of unshaven and it was like being on the set of a vietnam yeah. war movie and um he's just like oh you know welcome you know just you know just go with sergeant so-and-so and you know good luck or something and then i don't know 30 minutes later 45 minutes later um it comes over the radio he's been killed oh my God. um he'd been shot dead going into a house <sighs> and and so at that point i was like God, this is like this is this is unreal, and and so in that company, he was killed. His number two, the the XO, who was like a young lieutenant called Edward Iwan, he was killed. Um, and then the battalion, like command sergeant major, uh, who was this guy in his you know I guess late forties, been there, done that. Um, when they breached into the city, um, he just took a bullet just underneath his helmet dead you know and and the night before we'd gone in i remember being in the sort of this like improvised sort of briefing room they they'd set up and i remember those three of of sims iwan and falkenberg who was the command sergeant major i remember them like you know standing around the map and you know moving things around i remember thinking like shit i wish i had a camera with me because that just it's just like very you know just a very powerful sort of image. And then all three of them were dead, you know, within, you know, wow. the next couple of days. Oh and so, so it, def- you know, it, it definitely, it definitely felt very real, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, it was largely sanitized as well, though, the reportage of, you know, casualties in, in, in those war, ever since obviously the fiasco of Vietnam being televised, um, you know, very little really got out uh, about the, I suppose the human cost on, on the, uh, American side and, and, and the British side? Well, that's an interesting point because when Sean Sim- Sims was killed, the captain, and he'd walked into this house and it was supposed to have been cleared and it hadn't been it hadn't been cleared properly because there was still obviously some insurgents in there. And so he was shot in the head and there was a photographer um, who was, you know, part of our kind of group uh, who was sort of right on the scene, and he went into the house, and he just, you know, rattled off all these frames, 
and he took this picture of of this soldier um, dead, you know, with this like crimson blood leaking out onto the floor, and it was a kitchen, and there was, you know, it was an Iraqi house, and there was like a little kind of a pot for boiling water, and somebody had drawn like a like a Valentine's heart on on one of the kitchen cabinets, and this was part of the picture, and it was just. It was just an incredibly powerful picture. And the rules were that uh, if you were embedded, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't release the names or the images mm-hmm. of casual. You couldn't release the names before the next of kin had been no- notified, mm-hmm. which is, you know, fair enough. Nobody's going to argue with that. Mm-hmm. And and you couldn't you couldn't show images of that are identifiable from the face Um of dead American soldiers. Mm. Um, but this picture that had been taken of Sean Sims, it wasn't identifiable as him. Uh, but, and the, and the picture was published, but it was published in Germany where the 1st Infantry Division was based. Oh. And, you know, basically families put, put two and two together pretty quickly yeah. and said that's Captain Sims. And then the, the shit kind of hit the fan, and um, the photographer was sort of, you know, frog marched away. And I'd written, I'd written a very raw kind of like briefing by the sergeant that I was with. Mm-hmm. I can still remember him; like he was called Sergeant Fitz. And and he basically, when the news of Sims's death had come over the radio, he gathered his squad together and said, like, you know, listen. The, he says the CO's dead, and the reason he's dead is because he fucked up because he walked into the house without clearing it. And the reason why we're alive and he's dead is because we clear, we do things properly, and we fucking clear houses and you know and all this. And he was just trying to motivate his mm. men, yeah. you know, and impress upon them that you know there's danger lurking around every corner and, and all the rest of it. Um, but you know, I wrote. I mean, I remember when he was talking. He, and I was like writing it all down, and he turned around to me and he says, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm just, uh, I'm just writing down what you're saying." Oh, he was, yeah. he just kind of smiled and said, "Fair enough." Um, but you know, I put that in the piece that I wrote, and that didn't go down very well. Right. Um, mm. And so there was a real, like, you know, it was kind of, it was all chummy in a way up until that point. Mm. But you know, we had a job to do, they had a job to do, and although we were together. You know, sometimes the paths would diverge a little bit, and um, so you know it was kind of unfortunate. But um, mm. but yeah, that's sort of the reality of war, and the fact that we were there to sort of portray it. Uh, um, you know, it did. It sort of it definitely led to some friction yeah. in the end. And, and and you went in yourself, like in fairness, Toby. You know, rather than writing from behind a desk, mm-hmm. like as a fellow journalist, yeah. you can only admire and respect that. We'll move on to another topic now, but just before we go, could I, on on this particular topic, I just ask you, what was your impression of the the American soldiers in Iraq? The one, the impression I got from from the book I did about the Marines was, despite their almost elitist units amongst them, they're not all elitist, but it was a ragtag yeah. army. You know, he was driving around a Humvee that had bungee cords holding on ammunition boxes. There was holes in the floors. He painted the Marine I I did the book on painted a. a a picture of the American military as as not fit for purpose. Yeah, well, I wouldn't go that far, but um, you you certainly had your elite units, um, and then you had 
you know, you're sort of, you know, your ordinary grunts. And, and as it wore on, you know, you'd have, I mean, some of the first infantry division soldiers, you know, I was with snipers who were like highly trained and stuff, but your average, just, you know, what we would call a squaddy just joined up to, you know, pay, you know, get, um, pay through college later on or whatever, mm-hmm. didn't really want to be there. Um, you know, and then later on, they, they actually, um, cause they just needed more and more people into the system. They'd, um, they reduce the educational requirements and you definitely would occasionally, you know, come across the people and you think like, yeah, this isn't exactly, you know, um, your sort of, you know, SAS or, or Delta force. Mm. Um, but in, in Fallujah, um, I thought it was, it was, it was a pretty professional operation, um, Mm. uh, mostly. And, and the Marines who I wasn't with in Fallujah, but they tended to be, you know, a cut above, uh, you know, most of your regular infantry in the army. Very good. Excellent. And, and to give a little bit of a snippet, because I want, to, I want to plug, obviously, First Casualty a little bit, and you don't want to give too much of the whole story away so the people actually uh, go, out, go, out, go, out, go out and buy it. Um, but, you know, I suppose in, in, in contrast to, you know, what you were saying about this, sanitization of, of what you might have written uh, within the army when you were there on the, on the ground like you, you were given good access um uh, you must have been in order to write the, the narrative of of first casualty and and some of the like with with the cia i have a quite a different view of the regular spook uh you know because i mean they, like uh, you know you, you have this image of them from telly and then there was like Mike Spann and all who went in and, you know, pretty ordinary guys yeah, who just got yeah, yeah. in a whole world of shit, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, fought yeah. very bravely, though. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so first casualty, I mean, I didn't know, I mean, this often happens when you start out, you don't quite know the book you're going to end up with. Mm. Um, and so I didn't real, I didn't know that it was actually going to center on the these eight CIA officers, so Team Alpha, who were the first... First Americans behind enemy lines in Afghanistan after 9-11. I thought it was going to be more Green Berets. Actually, British Special Boat Service were there. Um, I thought it was going to be more about the battle in the fort where Mike Spann was killed. Mm. But um, uh, I met this guy, David Tyson, who in a way is like the central figure of first casualty. Um, and, you know, I cover the military a lot. And everybody in Team Alpha, like one was a serving Green Beret. The other seven were all former military um, and some kind of elite special forces sort of backgrounds, but um, several of the others not. But, they, you know, they did have a military background. But Dave, David Tyson, was he was 40 then. Um, and he'd been an academic, an Uzbek linguist, Central Asian studies. And I was blown away by what interesting people these were. So, I mean, of eight people, a very, like, eclectic bunch of people, a range of ages and experiences. David was an academic who knew a ton about Afghans. And, uh, but, you know, he, he, I think he hadn't fired a pistol for about five years. You know, he had a quick refresher on, on or a quick lesson on the Kalashnikov just before going in. And then when the shit hit the fan, there's a prison uprising, he, he's there and he has to, fight his way out and ends up killing dozens of like Al-Qaeda guys sort of flinging themselves at him. And um, so, you know, it was just, it just turned into this incredible story. And, um, you know, initially I spoke to David and then it was, you know, this guy, JR, the chief who, 
who'd retired and was writing sort of, you know, churning out thrillers. Um, and then I spoke to him. And then, but then, you know, I never, I ended up speaking to all six of the surviving members, but that was by no means guaranteed. It was, it was never on a platter. It just kind of happened that way. You know, you go to one person, you build up sort of trust and confidence. And then eventually, you know, they talk amongst themselves and they go, oh, this guy seems like he's basically okay. And, and, and so I was able to sort of build up the picture. And then the CIA itself, because a couple of people involved were still serving. And so I went to the CIA of public affairs who normally just say no comments, like easiest job in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I said, this is what I'm doing. And they were like, yeah, we know, we've heard. I said, well, you know, um, if you could help help with some of this, that would, you know, that would be great. And to my surprise, they were actually pretty positive because I think I, they felt that for, from the point of view, the CIA was a positive story. And so they never opened the vaults. They never gave me all their secret cables mm-hmm. or anything, but they did, you know, help facilitate some of the interviews. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it ended up being, you know, a very sort of, rewarding project and i think really connecting it with dead men risen and bandit country in a way it's about the reality of war on the ground when things go wrong people fuck up people are brave uh, people you know sometimes just you know are frozen by fear and um and i felt like another example of you know i had this when i was you know doing bandit country where all of a sudden you come across something you're like shit, I couldn't make that up. That's, that's unbelievable. You know, like, so the truth is better than fiction. Yeah. And so, so, um, yeah, so that was, uh, that ended up being first casualty. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's, that's brilliant. So, I mean, again, Toby, this, this has been, been amazing. You are, as I imagined you would be from your writing, I have to say you are the same in person. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so very good. It's been a real pleasure uh, meeting you. Can, can I just add, you've worn it well. You don't look yeah. like a man who's who's gone yeah. from, uh, from from bandit country in, in deepest, yeah. darkest South Armagh to the, to the Kiln Fields of Fallujah and... and, and back to spook land i mean yeah. you know it obviously suits you this yeah. this particular line of work yeah. i guess so i guess so maybe it's good lighting today <laughs> well keep the stories coming yeah, Toby. it really please. has been a pleasure as a fellow journalist like you're you're right up there with john pilgers and all the rest of it. important stuff as well Thank you know you. really stuff that that makes makes a difference and thanks for taking the time to to come on board with us we're only starting out so appreciate the support yeah very much so yeah well i look forward i look forward to listening to it you've already had some interesting guests so yeah that's yeah. That's one of your listeners i was your first twitter follower you were so yes you were. get a special prize for that toby it's a it's a free copy i believe of of your latest book signed by us yeah <laughs> right. brilliant thank you have a good evening take care thanks for your well, time thanks for having me on. i appreciate it thank Bye-bye. you so much Bye-bye. all right cheers